your host, retired professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. First off, thanks to everyone who downloaded episode one. We're glad you've decided to stick around and hope you continue to do so as I chronologically take you through each episode of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. As always, we can be reached at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, so please feel free to drop us a line anytime. The good thing is that because we're so early on in the process, I can promise you that I will read anything you write right here on the show, uh, including these three five-star reviews, which have since been written on iTunes. Don Vinny 45 says, Fantastic! An enlightening perspective on an era of wrestling that is long remembered as the Holy Grail. Take a listen with former wrestler Henry Hugepex and th- see things from a whole new light about the WWE's golden days. Very entertaining and is quickly in the running to become my favorite wrestling podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Don Vinny. I appreciate that and I certainly hope you're not an Italian mafioso like a certain person we're going to discuss later on in this show. Uh, next up, Insight from a Future Hall of Fame Talent by Rockstar Troy. I was there when Henry Hugepex wrestled his last match against Paco Loco, the Chilean chinlock machine. It was an amazing match. This podcast ranks up there in my top three Attitude Era podcasts. Give Henry a listen. You know, I, I actually get that a lot. The Paco Loco match is, by most accounts, a five-star classic. Definitely seek it out via VHS tape trading if you can. That man could slap a chinlock on you that would bring the crowd to its feet. Absolutely riveting stuff. And thank you very much, Mr. Troy. I hope very soon we will be your number one podcast devoted to the Attitude Era. And finally, very informative for a guy named after a house, says the legendary STM. Henry Hugepex, who sounds remarkably like a certain raccoon co-host of another great wrestling podcast, presents a chronological recap of the greatest, most successful era in wrestling history, where the rundown covers modern-day, raw attitude recaps Monday Night Raw episodes from the Attitude Era in a style that can only be described as, if a dirty joke book came to life, had sex with a wrestling recap blog, and spit out a baby that was then abandoned in a dumpster behind their high school. So listen, and then listen to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast too. Huzzah! Very high praise indeed, sir. Much appreciated. It is true, though, for some reason people frequently tell me that I sound like Raccoon Reigns, a talking raccoon who is a distant relative of the WWE's Roman Reigns. He appears occasionally on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, typically on post-pay-per-view shows, uh, so definitely give it a listen sometime if you get a chance. Personally, I don't hear the resemblance, but uh, I'll leave it up to you guys to decide. And again, thank you very much to all of you gentlemen for your kind praise. We appreciate your listenership, and I will continue to try and live up to your lofty standards, starting right now. So this time around, we'll be recapping episode number 240 of Monday Night Raw from December 29, 1997, the final Raw before 1998 arrives. We open with a quick recap of last week's shenanigans where Commissioner Slaughter ordered Shawn Michaels to defend his European title against his pal Triple H, which of course resulted in Shawn laying down for Hunter so he could take the title. Tonight, Slaughter has ordered Triple H to put his new belt on the line against the man who jumped him last week, Owen Hart. Of course, if you want a full recap of everything which transpired the week prior, please feel free to download episode one of this fine podcast if you have not already done so. Okay, so tonight we're live from Uniondale on Long Island, and this time it actually looks like we're in a real arena as opposed to last week in Lowell, Massachusetts, which looked like it could have been broadcast from someone's very large living room. We open with what is scheduled to be a match, Stone Cold Steve Austin 
versus the artist formerly known as Goldust, accompanied by Luna Vachon. With the new year only a few days away, Goldust is dressed up as the New Year's Baby, a gimmick which the Big Show would eventually copy 16 years later. He's wearing a diaper and sucking on a bottle, so kudos to the man for going all out. Goldust grabs a mic and he is once again doing a stereotypical gay voice, because the late 90s were cool with that sort of thing. He tells us that he will be entering, quote, the 1988 Royal Rumble, so apparently he's a time traveler, I guess. He then pulls out a pair of black panties and says that he and Steve Austin can play Barbie and Ken, perhaps a reference to the segment from last week where Santa mentioned that Austin asked for a Barbie doll for Christmas, and I can only imagine how much Austin must not be a fan of this promo. Austin comes to the ring to talk some trash, and he tells Goldust he isn't going to wrestle him. Instead, he has a surprise for him, and a large object covered in a black tarp gets lowered from the ceiling into the ring. Austin removes the tarp and shows us that it's a porta potty which is helpfully labeled Crapper 316. Goldust gets in the ring and tries to sneak attack Austin, but Stone Cold slams him in the face with the door to the crapper. He throws Goldust inside, but he emerges a few seconds later, so Austin hits him with a stunner, throws Goldust back in, and then tips the porta potty over. Thankfully, it seems the crapper was empty, because the front row of the audience was not then deluged with a cascade of feces. Jim Ross informs us that Austin will be in the Royal Rumble, and he thinks that he's the odds-on favorite to win it all. I would say I agree. Jim Ross, Michael Cole, and Kevin Kelly are your commentators for the first hour, and Cole proceeds to call our attention to a tall, wooden crate which is standing at the top of the entranceway, and at this point, I got pretty excited because I hadn't realized that this was the episode of Raw where this happens, but of course more on that later. The first actual match is a Long Island brawl between the Disciples of Apocalypse and Los Bariquas. Apparently a Long Island brawl just means that all six men can beat the crap out of each other without having to tag each other in. Now I gave a quick recap on DOA last week, so here's a quick rundown on Los Bariquas. When Savio Vega was expelled from the Nation of Domination, he did the same thing as Crush. He formed his own gang of wrestlers, and if you are able to name one other member of Los Bariquas without looking it up, I will personally send you one of my old school plastic Hasbro wrestling figures. Go ahead and think. I'll give you a few seconds, and time's up. You lose. The other members were Miguel Perez Jr., Jose Estrada Jr., and Jesus Castillo, not a junior. A quick spoiler for a few months from now, Jose Estrada is likely best remembered as the man who fought Edge in his debut match, which is best remembered for Edge diving over the top rope and legitimately breaking Estrada's neck, resulting in a count-out victory and thus making Edge the original Canadian crippler. As you might imagine, Los Bariquas spent most of their time feuding with DOA and the Nation of Domination because gang fights are cool and make a difference Fatu completely fell asleep on the job when he tried to tell us otherwise. We see a clip from five months ago where Los Bariquas had a backstage brawl with DOA, which culminated in the Bariquas dragging one of DOA's motorcycles behind their car, so you know this shit is personal. DOA wear vests to the ring, but I would take them much more seriously as bikers if they would wear those classic biker t-shirts that say, if you can read this, the bitch fell off on the back. Fans don't really give a shit about them, so a more realistic gang name for them would probably be the Sons of Apathy. Fittingly, during the match, a fan holds up a sign that just says, STAB HIM! which would presumably be legal in a Long Island brawl. Some other quality signs in the crowd include Vince signed Chris Jericho a year and a half early, and Tony O'Connor has a micro-pecker, which amusingly is shown getting confiscated by security 15 seconds later. These are the things which end up forever immortalized on the WWE Network. After a few minutes of sloppy brawling, Jose Estrada, the one member of Los Periquas who was not actually in the match, grabbed Chains and held him up for Savio to kick him. Of course, as happens 99% of the time in wrestling, Chains ducked and Savio kicked Estrada instead. Chains then pinned Estrada for the three count, despite the fact that Estrada was not actually in the match. But hey, just like in real gang fights, sometimes our friends are also casualties. 
When we come back from break, Triple H and China are in the ring, and Hunter is on crutches with a brace on his knee. He says that he dislocated his kneecap in a match last night, so he is unable to defend his European title against Owen Hart tonight. He also notes that Shawn Michaels is at home with a 102-degree fever, so he will not be appearing tonight. He says HBK will beat The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble, which brings out some druids who are pushing a casket to the ring, which is also covered with a black tarp. Apparently, the WWF must have had some deal going with the black tarp impresario of Long Island because we're less than a half hour into the show and we've already had two tarp reveals. The casket lid opens and it's none other than... Shawn Michaels. Wow, Triple H really fooled us for upwards of two minutes there. We also now see that the casket has been spray-painted with pro-DX messages, and HBK then grabs a mic. He proceeds to introduce us to the two newest members of Degeneration X, China's breast implants. So really, this is a historic episode of Raw for multiple reasons. Breast puns ensue, and HBK tells us that 1998 will be the year of Degeneration X, which is actually pretty accurate, although, spoiler, he won't necessarily be involved in that much of it. Commissioner Slaughter then proceeds to interrupt, and DX then mock his weight by poking him in the stomach and doing the Pillsbury Doughboy laugh, which was actually pretty amusing. Slaughter says that Triple H is too injured to wrestle, but Sean looks perfectly healthy, so tonight he will face Owen Hart with the WWF Championship on the line. HBK flips out, presumably because he remembers when Owen almost murdered him with that enziguri a few years prior. Backstage, we see the Sons of Apathy, the Headbangers, and for some reason, Scott Taylor, the future Scotty Tuhati, all conspiring together. Apparently, they're planning to gang up on Kane because he has previously attacked all of them. Somehow, despite the fact that there are six of them, I still don't like their odds. Also, it's never a good sign for an episode of Raw when the Disciples of Apocalypse are pulling double duty. Next up, we have Ken Shamrock taking on Kama Mustafa, accompanied by Nation of Domination members Farouk and D'Lo Brown. Kama Mustafa is, of course, Charles Wright, a.k.a. the former voodoo practitioner Papa Shango, and the future pimp, The Godfather. Right now, he's in the middle stretch of his career, where he initially took on the gimmick of a UFC-inspired shoot fighter, the Supreme Fighting Machine Kama Mustafa, or, as I lovingly referred to him, the Supreme Fucking Machine Kama Masutra. At this point in time, he's done away with his shoot-fighting gimmick entirely, and he's just a boring member of the Nation of Domination. Last week, Shamrock made D'Lo tap out to the ankle lock, so he's continuing to work his way through the NOD as he prepares to face The Rock at the Royal Rumble in a few weeks. I noticed another wonderful sign when this match started, a drawing of one man doing another man up the ass with the helpful labels that the rapist was Eric Bischoff and the rapee was Bret Hart, along with the phrase, WCW sucks. Certainly, the fans are doing their parts to make their signs quite a bit more immature as we fully segue into the Attitude Era. So this was another short but not bad match where the Nation of Domination attempted to interfere on Kama's behalf. While Farouk distracted the referee, D'Lo got up on the apron and held up Shamrock so Kama could kick him. But much like what we just saw in the earlier match on this very show, Shamrock ducked and Kama kicked D'Lo by mistake. Shamrock then took Kama down, put him in the ankle lock, and scored the submission victory. After the match, the Nation surrounded Shamrock, but The Rock emerged from backstage with a microphone. Just like last week, he tells the Nation not to attack Shamrock, and then he cuts a mediocre promo. He informs us that next week, Shamrock's lucky streak will run out when he faces Farouk. Apparently, Rock has the ability to just make the matches himself now, it seems. Farouk looks completely shocked, but really, doesn't this make a lot of sense since Shamrock is just beating the Nation of Domination members in consecutive weeks? I mean, it's the next logical step. Uh, The Rock then tells D'Lo and Kama to know their roles and follow him backstage. Sadly, Farouk does not utter the phrase, Damn! 
Earlier today, Vince McMahon is shown sitting in the empty arena. He promises us that 1998 will be the most action-packed year in the history of company, and quote, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, it should be noted that even though we're about a month and a half removed from the Montreal Screwjob and the infamous Brett Screwed Brett interview, Vince has not yet transitioned into the full-on Mr. McMahon character. In fact, with his Attitude Era speech two weeks ago and this pre-taped vignette, it actually seems like they're trying to make Vince, dare I say, likable. How soon will that change? Stay tuned. Next up, Jerry the King Lawler and Too Sexy Brian Christopher versus WWF Light Heavyweight Champion Takamichinoku and a mystery partner. Before the match, Lawler grabs a mic and reveals to us that Brian Christopher's father is actually Jim Ross. I can see the resemblance. We then flash back to three weeks ago when Lawler and Christopher jumped Taka and hit him with a combined three pile drivers, and then two weeks ago when Taka was about to pin Lawler, but Christopher ran into the ring and broke up the pinfall for the disqualification. Clearly, this is a storied rivalry. We then get introduced to Taka's mystery partner, George the Animal Steel, complete with green tongue and hairy back, and his trademark eating of the turnbuckle. Much to my surprise, the animal legitimately gets a huge pop, despite the fact that he stole Batista's nickname. Pretty cool to see. The match mainly consists of Lawler and Christopher working over Taka with double teams behind the ref's back, including Lawler hitting Taka with some sort of foreign object in his fist. Eventually, the animal has enough and starts hitting Lawler and Christopher with a foreign object of his own, but referee Jim Cordero sees it and calls for a disqualification. If ever you needed a reminder that the Attitude Era wasn't exactly aspiring to showcase quality wrestling, this episode of Raw has driven that point home. After the match, the animal chases Corderas to the back as the first hour of the show ends. Cue up Thorn in Your Eye, some new credits which prominently feature Ahmed Johnson for some reason, and some more pyro, and we are now entering the war zone. Jerry Lawler has also now joined Jim Ross on commentary as well. JR says that later on there will be an announcement pertaining to Mike Tyson having some involvement with the WWF, so stay tuned for that. Spoiler alert, he's going to box Bart Gunn in the brawl for all. Up next, WWF Tag Team Champions The New Age Outlaws come to the ring, and Road Dog shows us some of their, quote, greatest hits on the Titantron, including a vicious chair shot to Dude Love's skull, throwing Dude Love off the stage onto a table, and a clip from last week when they locked Mankind inside of a walk-in freezer. Dude Love then appears in the Titantron and says he has been unsuccessful against the Outlaws, so he will let someone else fight for him. We then do one of those face-meldy things, where Dude's face turns into Mankind's. Uh, Just watch Michael Jackson's black or white video if you want to see what I mean. Mankind says Mrs. Foley's baby boy is coming home since they're in Long Island tonight, and his face then melds into Cactus Jack. He says it won't be two-on-one tonight because Chainsaw Charlie is here to back him up. Cactus then emerges from backstage with a baseball bat covered in barbed wire. The bell rings, and despite what Cactus said, the match actually is two-on-one to start, as the aforementioned Chainsaw Charlie is nowhere to be found. Hmm, I wonder where he could be. Cactus is on the offensive for a while until Billy distracts the referee, and Road Dog then clobbers Foley in the head with a chair, to which Jim Ross fittingly says, He's gotta have a concussion! He then should have also added, but we're going to let him keep wrestling anyway. Despite this, Cactus ends up getting the better of Road Dog with a double-arm DDT, but when Foley goes for the pin, Billy runs in to break up the pinfall, and this somehow causes the ref to disqualify the Outlaws. Or perhaps this was actually just a singles match, which is why the ref called for the bell when Billy ran in. They weren't exactly clear on that. The Outlaws then clothesline Cactus out of the ring, but he invites them to follow him up the ramp. They do so, and Cactus then throws Road Dog into the wooden crate, which is Chainsaw Charlie's cue. We get the cool visual of a chainsaw sawing through the crate to form a door as Chainsaw Charlie Charlie emerges and chases the outlaw down toward the ring, all while his chainsaw is loudly making noise. He proceeds to start sawing away at the ring posts as the outlaws run through the ring and then backstage as Cactus and Chainsaw stand tall. 
Chainsaw Charlie is, of course, longtime Mick Foley pal and frequent wrestling retiree Terry Funk, who was 53 years old at this time. Funk is obviously a wrestling legend, and he had just spent four years furthering his legacy in ECW, so why was he returning to the WWF as a completely new character? Well, here's an excerpt from Funk's autobiography, More Than Just Hardcore, where he explains. And I won't try to imitate Funk's voice as Jim Ross seemingly does on every goddamn episode of his podcast. I got ready for my big debut on Raw that Monday night in December, and the plan was for me to come out of a box. Bruce Pritchard, one of the backstage guys, was describing to me what they wanted me to do. I said, that's it? You just want me to come out of the box? Well, yeah, he said, just come out of the box. Do you want to come out as anything? Before my brain could fully process the question, my lips blurted out, Chainsaw Charlie, get me a chainsaw so I can go out there. I can't explain it, it just popped into my mind. They asked me what I wanted to wear and then got me some Levi jeans and a pair of suspenders. I already had a red shirt, so I kept that. Then they got me a woman's pantyhose stocking and some baby powder to put on my head, all at my request. What an idiot. I guess I could have just gone out there without anything over my head, but I wouldn't have been Chainsaw Charlie with Terry Funk's head, would I? I'd have been Chainsaw Terry. I came out of that box with my chainsaw and my stocking over my head, and the crowd, expecting some great surprise, let out a sound that seemed strangely reminiscent of escaping gas. I had visions of coming out to a tremendous roar, but that wasn't exactly the reaction I got. So there you have it. Perhaps chalk the gimmick up to senility, but damn it, Terry Funk is in the WWF, and he's Chainsaw Charlie now, and we, we all just have to live with that. After a commercial break, Sable comes to the ring wearing a black robe and presumably not very much underneath it. Kevin Kelly is set to interview her about the new edition of Raw magazine in which she and Sonny have both done sexy photo shoots. Side note, knowing how much Tammy Sitch hated Sable at this time, I am sure she was not too pleased with getting dual billing. Sable says she wants to give the fans a sneak preview of the magazine, but not surprisingly, Mark Merrow comes to the ring to interrupt. He sits in a chair and says he's just here for the show, and he hopes Sable doesn't do anything humiliating, to which I say, don't worry, she's not wrestling tonight. Kevin Kelly tells Merrow to get a hold of himself, to which Merrow then says, you ain't nothing but a third-string announcer, fat boy, and then he punches him in the dick. For me, that will probably be the biggest highlight of Mark Merrow's tenure in the entire Attitude Era. Just like last week, Tom Brandy, a.k.a. the former Salvatore Sincere, comes to the rescue. He knocks down Merrow and tends to Sable, but when he has his back turned, Merrow hits him with a chair and then delivers a TKO onto the chair as well. Merrow then tears apart the Raw magazine and stuffs pictures of Sable in Brandy's mouth and also down his tights, and I bet that gave him a boner. Sincerely. In fact, since I didn't do it last week, let me give a quick background on this feud. Tom Brandy joined the WWF in 1996 under the aforementioned gimmick of Salvatore Sincere, who was basically an Italian mafia stereotype. He would profess to love all of his opponents sincerely, with the joke being that, of course, he did not. Perhaps his most noteworthy moment came in November 1996, when he was the opponent for the Monday Night Raw debut of a young upstart named Rocky Maivia. You may also want to look up his match with The Undertaker, where, for some reason, he disgustingly pretended to pick a booger out of Taker's nose and eat it. Seriously, this actually happened, and I'll be damned if I could tell why it happened. Also, feel free to insert your own booger red joke here. Up to roughly one month ago, December 8th, 1997, Brandy wrestled under the Salvatore Sincere gimmick until a bitter Mark Marrow went and said this before a match between the two of them. What really irritates me is that Vince McMahon has got marvelous Mark Marrow wrestling a jobber. Whoa. You see, Marvelous Mark Merrill always wins. A jobber always loses. You are a jabroni. You're a nobody. In fact, you're not Sal Sincere, the pizza delivery boy. Your name is Tom Brandy. 
That's right, Mark Merrow literally called Tom Brandy a jobber on an episode of Raw, and also a jabroni before The Rock made it one of his full-on catchphrases. I can't say for sure, but I have to assume that this angle was Vince Russo's idea. Revealing the inner workings of the business? Check. Calling a wrestler by his real name? Check. The only thing missing was them having an object on a pole match immediately after that promo. And that's where we are now with this feud. Sable wants to show her Babylons. Merrow says no. Brandy comes down to defend her right to show her titters, and the cosmic ballet continues. Next up, the DOA, the Headbangers, Scott Taylor and Flash Funk all head to the ring to call out Kane. If only they could bring Mark Merrow back out to call all seven of these guys jobbers as well. Of all people, Chains gets on the mic and calls Kane down to the ring, so that really lets you know where this crew stands when that dude is the mouthpiece of the group. Kane and Paul Bearer head to the ring, and Kane is obviously quite aware of how weak this group is because he just walks right into the ring like he doesn't give a shit. However, before they can attack The Undertaker's music hits, he walks to the ring and stares down Kane, but instead of helping the enhancement talent, Taker starts beating them up as well. The Brothers of Destruction quickly clear the ring, and then The Undertaker walks back up the ramp. He looks into the camera and says that he will never fight Kane, and that he will, quote, burn in hell before I fight you. Spoiler alert, they never ever fight each other. Backstage, Michael Cole is with the New Age Outlaws. He tells them they will have to defend their tag titles against the Legion of Doom at the Royal Rumble. Billy says they have other things to worry about, like a crazy guy chasing them with a chainsaw, and right on cue, Chainsaw Charlie starts sawing down the door behind them. They grab their titles and scamper off as Charlie and Cactus Jack break through the door with Foley amusingly falling down, Shockmaster style. Next up, an interesting segment. Occasionally, Jim Cornette was given airtime to cut work shoot promos on the state of the wrestling industry as he saw it. It may shock you to know that Cornette has strong opinions on certain matters, and these commentaries allowed him to vent. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and play some of it for you, and I apologize for the first 20 seconds or so where it sounds like Cornette is having continuous flatulence for some reason. Well, the WWF has asked me to do a commentary on the state of wrestling in 1998. I guess they figure Cornette's always good for a couple of laughs. Well, I'm not really going to be too funny tonight. Because, you see, I think the state of wrestling in 1998 stinks. I think WCW stinks. I think the NWO stinks. I think ECW is embarrassing. And I think the WWF stinks. And I'll tell you why, you don't have to go back any further than last week on Raw. You got a guy coming out dressed like a Christmas tree. You got a woman coming out dressed like a reindeer. You got two adolescent mullet heads showing their butt cheeks on national TV and having a phony match for a championship. I think it stinks. I think it's disgusting. I think nobody has any respect for wrestling anymore. Where is wrestling? Not sports entertainment, but wrestling. You know, just a couple of years ago, I left my home in Tennessee and I moved to Connecticut, which is like trading a Hawaiian vacation for a bed in a cancer ward, to come to work for the WWF full-time, the biggest wrestling promotion in the history of the planet. And I moved to Connecticut with snow on the ground seven months out of the year, real estate prices that would make Donald Trump's hair stand on end, the rudest bunch of people I've ever seen where English is a second language and traffic jams at four o'clock in the morning, but I think that's okay because I'm with the biggest wrestling promotion of all time, the WWF. But over the last couple of years, I don't see any wrestling. They got some great wrestlers around here, but they don't have any time to wrestle because of all the falderall and the nonsense going on. You see, what the problem is, is the people running the two big promotions, one guy 
Is a game show host wannabe from Minneapolis with phony teeth, phony hair, and a phony tan. And running the WWF, you got a whole office building full of Yankees from New York City that wouldn't know a wrestling match if it bit them. So they sit around all day, listen to people on the internet, and the people on the internet wouldn't know a wrist lock from a wrist watch. I don't particularly care what some Yankee from New York City wants to see. I want to see wrestling matches with wrestlers. I want to see real old-fashioned wrestling. I want to see some people who have some respect for the traditions of the wrestling industry, have some respect for the sport of wrestling. I don't want to see sports entertainment and flying donkeys all around. I think it's garbage, I think it's insulting, and I think it's a shame to a fine sport like this. Apparently, not everyone is a huge fan of the Attitude Era so far. Although there is a bit of an irony to the fact this whole segment on Raw took up more than three minutes, time which could have actually been used to put on a wrestling match, but oh well. Also, nice shout out to future President Donald Trump in that promo, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Next up, Jim Ross was about to tell us the news regarding Mike Tyson, but instead, Sonny interrupts, and she's doing the Ric Flair strut down the aisle for some reason. She shows us her centerfold in Raw magazine and then gives it to a fan in the audience. She then proceeds to do the Ric Flair strut right back up the ramp, and that was it for the segment. I get the impression Sonny was backstage like, hey, Sable got a whole segment to talk about her spread in the magazine, so I'm fucking going out there and showing mine. In the present day, if you want to see even more of Sonny, well, let's just say you have options. Anyway, back to JR. The announcement is that as of today, the WWF has entered into negotiations with Mike Tyson about him being a part of WrestleMania 14 this March. So basically, the announcement amounts to, stuff may happen if we pony up enough cash. Well worth the wait. And now it's time for the main event. WWF Heavyweight Championship match. Champion Shawn Michaels, accompanied by China but not Triple H, taking on challenger Owen Hart. Owen gets the jump on HBK on the outside of the ring as the seizure-inducing DX entrance video is playing. He then proceeds to suplex Sean on the steel ramp and throw him face-first into it as well. The referee is allowing this to go on because HBK has not yet entered the ring, so I guess it's all legal. Then again, the referee for the match is Earl Hebner, so maybe he's allowing Owen to get away with it since he just screwed his brother last month. After a quick commercial break, we see that Triple H has now crutched himself to ringside as Owen continues dominating the match. Eventually, HBK takes the advantage when China grabs Owen's leg. He goes to the apron to yell at her, and HBK shoves him face-first into the steel barricade. Sean goes on the offensive for a while, but Owen starts gaining momentum, culminating with the aforementioned Enziguri, followed by a sharpshooter. However, before HBK can tap, Triple H swings his crutch at Owen, missing on the first attempt, but hitting him in the head with the second one, which results in a disqualification. DX starts beating on Owen, and, in something which would never happen today, we go off the air with the beatdown still continuing, and Shawn Michaels still your WWF Heavyweight Champion. Now let's wrap this puppy up. The Ratings Recap. So on this night, Raw was up against the post-Starcade episode of WCW Monday Nitro. The previous night on Starcade, Sting had returned to the ring for the first time in 15 months and defeated Hulk Hogan for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship with help from Bret Hart. So maybe this is why they called an audible on Raw and had Shawn Michaels defend his WWF title instead of the previously promised Triple H vs. Owen European title match. Starcade ended up with 650,000 buys, the most in WCW history. For some perspective, WrestleMania V, which featured the heavily built-up Hulk Hogan vs. Randy Savage Mega Powers Explode match, drew that same number. So basically, this was WCW's pinnacle. Here's what happened on the post-Starcade episode of Nitro, which Raw was up against. Goldberg defeated Glacier, who was somehow still around at this point. Chris Benoit, never heard of him, defeated Hammer, the wrestler, not the guy who's saying you can't touch this. 
Ultimo Dragon beat Eddie Guerrero to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Diamond Dallas Page defeated Mortis to retain the WCW United States Championship. Booker T beat Disco Inferno to win the WCW Television Championship. How many fucking titles does this company have? Kurt Hennig defeated Chris Jericho in a match I may actually want to go ahead and watch. Lex Luger defeated Buff Bagwell. And Sting versus Hollywood Hogan ended in a no contest. Yes, they actually had a rematch on the night after Starcade. I went ahead and watched this to see how it went down. The bell clearly rang to start the match, followed by Hogan hitting Sting with the WCW title multiple times right in front of referee Randy Anderson, and commentator Tony Schiavone then said, The bell has not even sounded! Yes. Yes, it had, actually. And then Randy Anderson began officiating the match as though he shouldn't have just DQ'd Hogan. Vintage WCW. Even better is the fact that right as Sting hit Hogan with a stinger splash, Shivani said, Fans, we're out of time! We gotta go! And the broadcast cut out, so the people watching at home did not even get to see how this epic rematch ended. I repeat, vintage WCW. However, the stunt worked very well as Nitro handily beat Raw in the ratings on this night, 4.6 to 3.6. This was the highest rating for Monday Nitro in more than two months, but interestingly, this was also the highest head-to-head rating for Monday Night Raw since May 6th, 1996, three weeks before Scott Hall debuted on Nitro. Clearly, it seems like the fans are embracing the newer, edgier content. I guess what I'm saying is Los Bariquas equal ratings. Quick summary of this episode, I guess this episode of Raw was much more entertaining than last week's, but by no means a classic. Sean vs. Owen was a fun main event, Cornette's rant was entertaining, the crowd marking out for George the Animal Steel was great to see, and we had two noteworthy debuts, Chainsaw Charlie and China's Breast Implants. I would actually say the Chainsaw Charlie debut is probably the first really memorable moment of the Attitude Era, although whether it's memorable for good or bad reasons will be up to you. There was certainly some filler in this episode as well, and once again, aside from Sean versus Owen, the match quality was really lacking, which I suspect will be a recurring theme, but overall, this was a step in the right direction. As always, thank you very much for listening, and don't forget to drop us a line at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. I am Henry Huchbex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I can't possibly express my gratitude enough to you for listening. So, actually, you know what? I'll have someone else do it for me, and I'll see you next time. To tell all the beautiful people in this building that I love you all so much. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Sincerely.